You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our great sponsors of today's SpyCast, Mac Weldon and ZipRecruiter. We'd like to welcome Sherry's Berries to the SpyCast family. Also, if you've ever wanted to show the world how cool you are by listening to SpyCast, or how wonderfully nerdy you are, in my case, now you can. We have a shirt. And it's all kinds of awesome. And you can check it out at the Spy Museum retail shop online. Just go to spymuseum.org and click on Spy Shop at the top of the main page to see the new SpyCast shirt. Now let's meet our guest. We're joined today by Josh Kurlancic, who's a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was previously a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he studied Southeast Asian politics and economics and China's relations with Southeast Asia, including Chinese investment aid and diplomacy. Before that, he was a fellow at the University of Southern California Center on Public Diplomacy and a fellow at the Pacific Council on International Policy. He's also served as a columnist for Time, a correspondent for The Economist based in Bangkok, a special correspondent for The New Republic, a senior correspondent for The American Prospect, and a contributing writer for Mother Jones. He also serves on the editorial board of Current History. He is a winner of the Loose Scholarship for Journalism in Asia and was selected as a finalist for the Osborne Elliott Prize for Journalism in Asia. His first book, Charm Offensive, How China's Soft Power is Transforming the World, was nominated for CFR's Council for Foreign Relations 2008 Arthur Ross Book Award. He's also the author of Democracy in Retreat, The Revolt in Middle Class in the Worldwide Decline in Representative Government, and the author of the new book, A Great Place to Have a War, The Secret War in Laos and the Birth of a Military CIA, which is what we're here today to talk about. So thank you, Josh, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much for having me. So whenever we have authors that are dealing with some kind of new information about the intelligence world, uh, written a book that probably couldn't have been written before, I like to ask a little bit about kind of the origins and genesis of the book itself. What brought you to this idea in the first place? And, and why is now really the only time this book could have been written? Well, I was a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia in the late 90s and early 2000s. And um, what first brought me to it was I, I spent some time in Laos. And Laos was, and still is, but even more than, a very sleepy and um, off-the-beaten-path place. And I was there seeing this and learning more and more about how 
only at that time, 25, 30 years earlier, this place had been um, a central focus for U.S. national security. And um, the, the, this, this seems almost so bizarre to me, having been in Laos at that time, that this place could be a focus of the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations. So that was the, the, first, the first point, that I, it was hard for me to understand how this transpired, how there could be such a significant conflict there. And then, at the time, though, it was really hard to get information from the U.S. side, from um, the CIA side of the conflict that the CIA became uh, closely involved in there in 1961. And um, over the last five to ten years, the agency has done a pretty good job of um, declassifying a lot of its Laos records um, and putting them together in both on, because of declassification and from some pressure and um, putting them together in a series of histories about the Laos era and also collecting um, case studies from individual men who were case officers there. So it kind of became possible to tell a story in the past five to ten years. A, a key player uh, in this story is also Thailand, where you spent a lot of time. Does it, does it matter, or how much did it help you that Thailand itself kind of gave a government account of their efforts coordinating with CIA in Laos. So, yeah, I mean, so one of the things that people re- really in the U.S. don't know much about about the Vietnam War is that, the, and so Laos was, you know, one of the theaters of the Vietnam War, even though the conflict in Laos went basically unacknowledged by the U.S. government from 1961 until the late 60s, early 70s. But uh, one of the things that m- most people don't know here is that Thailand um, was a sig- pretty significant partner. Um, you know, the the bombing effort in, and air support effort in North Vietnam and to some extent in South Vietnam and in Laos as well was pretty much based out of Thailand. And many decisions were made out of Thailand. And in terms of the secret war in Laos, uh, I like to call it the Twilight War, even though some people call it the secret war, because there were people in the U.S. who knew, there were Congress people who knew, but it was sort of murky and never really fully revealed to the public. But Thailand played a major role in sending commandos into Laos, in funding the Laos um, war, and in very strongly encouraging the U.S. to take a strong stand in Laos. So there, are, there are books about history, and as a historian, I certainly understand this, that people will find interesting but don't necessarily have any kind of current impact. And you've been getting a lot of critical acclaim for this book, and I think because it does have a lot of overlap with what we're looking at today, thinking about the increased militarization of CIA that a lot of people have looked at as a result of 9-11 and the response to 9-11. But this book really kind of highlights how it started much, much earlier than that. Do you think that's why, and this might be a loaded question, but let's say it anyway, do you think that's why it's getting the kind of... Uh, kind of interest that a book on a sleepy country in Southeast Asia that no one really pays attention to would get otherwise? Well, the first thing I would say is I hope it's getting interest because um, partly it's a book that should hopefully appeal to a general interest reader as well as someone who is interested in Asia or interested in the Vietnam War or interested in, in intelligence. It's written in a narrative style, almost like almost like a telling, like almost a, like a film. So I, I hope that someone who's simply interested in good narrative nonfiction, um, like if you liked a book about the Comanches and Quanah Parker, just because it's good narrative nonfiction, 
even though you had no particular background knowledge about Quanta Park or the Comanches or Texas, which is um, which I didn't, um, but it was a good, well-written book. I hope that this will entertain you. So I think there's that first, but um, definitely the book has two themes, and one is simply to retell the Laos War, and second is to look at the major shift in the CIA that happened during the Laos War, the empowerment of the CIA, and the shift from making spying and intelligence work, what was thought of as traditional intelligence work, to military training and aid, essentially paramilitary operations, a much more central focus. It, it existed to some extent before, but it became much more central. And so I do think that that has sig- direct significant relevance for today. And we can talk about the overlap. The CIA was reformed in the 70s, and some of these efforts were shut down, but not completely. But many of the things that you see today, you can see in the Laos War. The elevation of paramilitary in the CIA, the empowerment of paramilitary officers, um, and the significant lack of oversight um, yet at the same time handing a lot of sort of war, war-type war uh, responsibilities to the agency rather than um, U.S. conventional forces. Right. So that it has a lot of parallels today. Well, one of the things that makes this an interesting narrative is that there are some quite interesting and very important historical figures in this book that many people may have never heard of. And I'm wondering if you can give us a brief bio on them to kind of set things up because names like Bill Lair and Tony Poe may not be household names, but they play such a key role in telling this story. And it's really on the backs of these characters, if you want to call them that, that this narrative plays out. And I think that's exactly what you're kind of talking about, that it's the narrative structure is, is different than a standard history book. So let's start with Bill Lair, because he seems to be central to this story. Can you give us a little bit of background on Bill? So Bill Lair was a guy who, a Texas guy who joined the CIA um, not long after the Second World War, a few years later. And um, he really acclimated to Southeast Asia and really became sort of one of these types who almost kind of went native, which was uh, sort of a, the CIA was of two minds about this, but he fit in very well in Southeast Asian culture and Thai culture, Lao culture, Thailand, Laos are neighbors and share some cultural traits and the language is similar. Um, And he really saw that the CIA could play a role in what was already a civil war in Laos but he was very much of the mindset that the CIA, the U.S., had to support a, a war that was run and managed by local people with the U.S. as playing a role of aiding, but that it should be local people basically fighting for their own land, and it should not be a quote-unquote American organ, uh, fight. And uh, he, he also saw the, he was the U.S. as kind of playing the role of supporting democracy in these places, but it had to be what local people wanted. So it was all based on um, some successes that had been had in the Philippines and Malaysia before. Um, He would go on as the war in Laos became bigger and bigger and more Americanized and less really in local people's interests, become increasingly disillusioned, and ultimately, I don't want to get too far ahead, but um, it would not turn out well for him or for a lot of people in Laos. And But Bill Lair was basically the person who came up with the idea for the covert operation in Laos. Well, his contemporary on the Laotian side was a man named Vang Pao. Was I pronouncing that correctly? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is quite a character. Um, this is somebody who you know, doesn't have the traditional background of a military commander, uh, but become incredibly important not only in the American 
uh, prosecution of this war, but also in broader politics when it comes to Laos and Southeast Asia. So Vang Pao was basically a Hmong young man who had spent, by the time that the CIA, that the war really ramped up in 1961, I mean, CIA was involved in Laos before that, certainly. Um, Vang Pao basically already spent his entire adolescent and adult life at war. Pretty, pretty much that was all he did or had known how to do. I mean, France, he fought with the French um, in the first Indochina War um, against North Vietnam, uh, not, uh, against Viet Minh, against Vietnamese communist nationalist forces that were making incursions into Laos. And he had won a lot of acclaim from French officers for his fighting skills. And the CIA, the U.S. and CIA, they were looking for local officers to work with and the national armed forces, the Royal Laotian Armed Forces, were riddled with corruption and not very effective. And so they saw in Vang Pao this kind of hill tribe, um, rugged local general who they thought could be not only an effective military commander, but kind of like a, um, a powerful local leader who they could invest in. And indeed, the CIA wound up investing very, very, very heavily in him, and he became the center, whole center of the operation, to some extent to the operation's detriment, but um, yeah. You talked about he, him being a Hmong, and I think that's important that we lay that foundation also. Right. For those of you who don't know what we're saying, we're actually pronouncing a word that's spelled H-M-O-N-G. It's uh, the Hmong people, uh, I'll let you talk about a little bit, but uh, for so- those who have studied Vietnam, there is a bit of an overlap to the Montagnards, perhaps, of, of the Vietnam side. But give a little bit of background about these people, uh, because a lot of the listeners could be living near one of them today. It was many of them came to the United States after the war. Uh, and the Hmong civilization is one that, you know, was American allies till the very end. Right. So, I mean, the, there are a number of so-called hill tribes in different parts of Southeast Asia, which is a name for a number of different ethnic minority groups who live in the uplands of Southeast Asia and um, is a broad generalization, but they have tended to be minorities in most of the modern-day countries. And also um, in Laos, there is a significant por- population of these Hmong, but the government, there was a royal government and then a French, gov- French royal government, they tended to be looked down on by the lowland people who make up the majority and tended to try to live in sort of clan-type structures. And the most important thing in terms of as the war went on is they, they, they didn't want real, they didn't want communist government. Most of them didn't want communist government. Mostly they both really kind of just wanted to be left alone. Um, and the Hmong had also fought in a many, many, many wars going back. And um, so they were sort of like in some ways for uh, an outside power like the U.S. or Thailand, the ideal ally allies in what was a communist versus non-communist war. They didn't, the Hmong weren't in love with the royalist non-communist government in in the capital of Laos, but they saw it as a way to protect their freedoms and that they would be more left alone. So you have like people who are a minority people historically had been discriminated against, were pretty very knowledgeable about the rugged terrain where they lived, had a lot of experience fighting, had proven that they could fight um, kind of had a chip on their shoulder with some reason against both outs- Vietnamese and the Lao- and Laotian communists, and were 
pretty desperate for aid. Um, so this is a perfect kind of, partner, right? Yeah. yeah, potentially makes a perfect partner. Um, and Vang Pao was one of the few Hmong um, people at that time who had worked with the French at a high level, worked with French officers, who spoke some French. So he was a, a person the U.S. could deal with. We will return to this conversation in a moment. But first, let me tell you about gifts like no other for your love like no other. There's no one like your Valentine. This year, treat them to an unforgettable gift that's as unique as they are. Now, for anyone in a long-term relationship, Valentine's Day can be taxing, mainly because you don't want to repeat the same old gifts from years past. The same old, tired, I didn't really try that hard this year, dear gifts. And a gift from Sherry's Berries shows her you put thought into finding the perfect gifts. Now, these berries are decadent, fresh, juicy, sweet, shareable, and irresistible. You can choose berries dipped in tempting white, milk, and dark chocolate goodness. You can also have things topped with chocolate chips, decorative swizzles, and chopped nuts. Surprise her at her office and workplace. Her coworkers are sure to be just a little jealous, and she'll be overjoyed. And you have options. Choose a gift from Sherry's Berry's incredible collection of gifts. Your gift will be perfectly packaged in a gift box with all the details taken care of. Sherry's Berries will deliver your gift fresh and on time, guaranteed, or your money back. And that, look, I'd like to add something here for our female listeners. This copy is designed to entice men to buy these, but we guys love Sherry's Berries as well. Just saying. So freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry Berries starting at just $19.99 plus shipping, or double the berries for just $10 more. Just go to berries.com and use our code SPYCAST. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and use our code SPYCAST. With Valentine's Day right around the corner, there's only one way to get Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99. Again, that's berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner and type in SPYCAST. That's berries.com and use our code SPYCAST. By doing this, you can help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Again, use the code SPYCAST. Let me ask you about Bill Sullivan, because he seems to be a, an a-stereotypical State Department official. He's somebody who uh, is interesting to me because you constantly hear about the bad relationship between the State Department and CIA. But he was somebody, as a diplomat, he was the ambassador there who truly embraced working with CIA, even more than with the U.S. military. He didn't like working with the military, but he liked working with the CIA. Can you talk a little bit about him? So Bill Sullivan was a um, career diplomat. Some people may know him a little bit outside of Laos context because he was also the U.S. ambassador in Tehran when, um, in the period around the time that the Shah fell and the revolution happened, although he, he wasn't still there when the hostages were taken. Um, but uh, he came to Laos in uh, the mid-60s as a pretty young ambassador, but very confident. And it was a very, very unique situation in U.S. foreign policy. The covert operation started in 1961, had already ramped up significantly, and was on its way to include training of tens of thousands of people, um, a, a number of CIA operatives in the field, even doing some, not supposed to do this, but were doing some local battlefield commanding, and then a significant bombing operation as well. And Bill Sullivan, although he would sort of deny this, but basically embraced many aspects of that. He was handling many aspects of the war planning and oversight along with the CIA station chief in the Lao capital and the CIA station in northeast Thailand. 
he was working with them to basically manage a war effort, which is almost unprecedented in State Department history. And at the same time, they very much wanted to keep uh, U.S. military commanders off of their turf. Um, and he saw the CIA as a more natural ally in this, and they did not want the conventional forces officers on their turf. They kept the military officer who was supposed to be basically providing advice for the war. They kept him in Bangkok. They tried to keep him in Bangkok as much as possible. They tried to not have him come to Laos. They kept him to basically what one historian called he was wound up essentially as a clerk. <laughs> they kept. They later kept William Westmoreland, who was the commander of, uh, basically the commander of all U.S. and Allied forces um, in the Vietnam theater for a time. They basically kept him out of, of the Laos operation as well, too. So there was a lot of enmity between the CIA and state and um, the armed forces. And um, Bill Sullivan definitely played a major role in that enmity. So uh, Sullivan had a great working relationship with CIA. Did this change at all? when a new CIA station chief arrived that people may have actually heard of, yeah. somebody very famous working in Miami and then later in Vietnam, Ted Shackley. Uh, a different kind of character than what Bill Lair was before him. So Bill Lair wasn't the station chief in Laos. He was basically the... He was running the operation out of Thailand. There was a different station chief in Laos before Shackley came, but that station chief before Shackley very much deferred to Bill Lair as the expert on um, Southeast Asia, as the expert on the Hmong people, and um, the station chief before Shackley also was, uh, he sort of shared Bill Ayer's concept of a, a war led by Laotian people um, with the U.S. somewhat in the background, and also that if you didn't do it to some extent the Laotian way, uh, it wouldn't work. Ted Shackley was very, very different. Um, he was very much like, although he, he wasn't from the Department of Defense, he very much shared the kind of best and the brightest McNamara efficiency American style, like be at your meetings exactly on time if not early, have a million meetings um, take a million notes, do everything um, in a certain very highly rigorous way just not really the way a lot of stuff gets done in Thailand and Laos, but um, he had a very different idea of what the war would be, but he got along well with Sullivan. Um, he did not get along well with Bill Lair or even with Vang Pao, but he, he and Sullivan got along well, and um, they transformed the war in a very dramatic way, and one that many of the people like Lair, many of the CIA folks like Lair were not happy about at all. I mean, we know a little bit about the Laotian War here at the Spy Museum because we, we work with a an organization that actually takes some of the unexploded ordnance and turns them into jewelry to help build schools and other things like that. So we have an idea, but not a super great idea. And I think like some other more familiar places uh, like Vietnam or unlike more other more familiar places like Vietnam, people may not understand why Laos was considered a priority for, this, for the United States and, and, and until they hear the fact it's basically a priority as far as I could read. Because it became a priority for the Soviets. It kind of became this Cold War battlefront in the zero-sum game between the Soviets and the United States. And I get it's next to Thailand even more than Vietnam is. Uh, but is Laos somewhat, something that can be considered by anyone to be an essential American interest? 
Okay, well, a couple of things there. Yeah. Uh, Laos, I know I attacked a lot of things on one. Laos place, wasn't I, a priority for the Soviets at that time. Let's just go back a little bit and mm-hmm. untangle a few things. Um, the, 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 there was a, Laos had already been, a, for the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations, a concern. But it was prompted by the idea that China, after, the, after China became communist, there was panic in the U.S. foreign policy establishment that China and then Vietnam and then other Asian countries were going to become communist. But, um, and um, indeed, Vietnamese communists had made major incursions into Laos, and, but the Soviets weren't that closely involved in Laos. They played a role, but it was not that great a role. One of the fallacies of American foreign policy at the time was understanding some of the differences between different communist movements. But um, I think what happened was you had this place that had seemed to fit the idea of the domino theory that you couldn't let more countries, particularly in Asia, fall to communism perfectly because it was wedged bet- between near China, between Vietnam and Thailand. And the pressure on the Eisenhower administration saw this place as kind of like a place to make a stand against communism, and for Kennedy as well. A second aspect about why it was a priority is that Laos was a place that both Eisenhower and Kennedy saw as kind of an ideal place to have a covert operation that could make a difference. Uh, There were some ideas presented by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to Kennedy to have an actual conventional war in Laos with U.S. troops, but those were shot down. But Kennedy, who was very much very much loved co- the, the idea of covert operations, even after Bay of Pigs, saw Laos as a place where a covert operation could make a big difference, and without having to commit conventional f- forces, he was still somewhat skeptical about conventional forces um, in Southeast Asia, although obviously ultimately he, 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 pay, he led the way to significant introduction of them. So for those two reasons... Um, that no one would argue in any way that today, I mean, there are people in D.C. who would argue this, but <laughs> Laos is not a priority interest in the United States today. Yes, you, you said several times that Laos was a priority, and, and I want to ask you if it's fair to say you're somewhat underselling that. The way you write in the book is that with historical hindsight, Vietnam we considered the U.S.'s number one priority in Southeast Asia, but that wasn't true at first. You, you write several times that Laos, by the Eisenhower Kennedy transition period was the number one Southeast Asian priority. Right. So Laos, had, there was a coup in Laos in 1960, and the civil war flared up into kind of chaos. And um, Vietnam was a little bit more stable at that time. And Eisenhower, in the transition period after Kennedy's election, spent uh, um, the, made Laos the t- top topic of conversation in the foreign policy briefing in the transition period. And he viewed Laos um, in that way. And Kennedy spent his first uh, foreign policy-related press conference talking about Laos. Um, and indeed, as I talk about in the book, the press coverage of Laos in the New York Times and other, some other outlets reflects this in 1969-61. There's far more time devoted to Laos than um, Vietnam. And this coup in Laos, which is not totally relevant, relevant to our story, but a little bit, because what it did was it created turmoil in this country, and the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations didn't really have a good bead on, was Laos going to, was communism going to spread into Laos? Who was the people, who were these people who led the coup? Were they actually even communists? 
And so in an environment of really not good information um, and already kind of ramped up domino theory and as well as fear, you have the possibility for a pretty significant um, reaction. And that is, that's partly why they went forward with um, covert action. And it's probably why someone even put on the table the idea that there should be significant actual conventional war in Laos, although Kennedy did reject that. So, yeah, at the beginning there, it was um, a very, very high priority. And simply the fact that throughout the entire 1960s, so much aid money, so much bombing um, was spent in Laos shows that although it retreated to not as important as Vietnam once U.S. troops were actually on the ground in Vietnam, it was still a very significant foreign policy priority. Skipping ahead a little bit, what made me interested in uh, this concept of the dynamic of CIA running a war, which is really what we're looking at here, was the Nixon administration, which has traditionally, and this is pretty famous within the intelligence historian, had a horrible relationship with CIA. But Nixon and Kissinger were perfectly fine in leaving the war up to CIA and letting them run this uh, without any real impact on top. Was, was this because it was a great place to go communist? Was this because the American people didn't seem to care all that much, that he didn't have to worry about uh, any kind of backlash? Was, was he looking at Vietnam broader strategically? I mean, Nixon and Kitchener were very big strategic thinkers, and the Laos War helped to prevent... North Vietnamese from, you know, giving full attention to Vietnam. I'm throwing a lot at you. I just want to, to me, it seemed like an interesting dynamic because the guy who historically distrusted CIA, didn't get along with the director, lets them run an entire war in a country next to Vietnam, which is the number one foreign policy priority. Right. So, I mean, I think there's a, a, a lot there. I mean, so certainly Nixon, Nixon disliked Richard Holmes intensely and I read CIA's declassified, um, internal biography of the CIA under DCI Helms and uh, you know Helms was prepared for Nixon to intensely dislike him and um, he certainly was aware of 1960 and the 1960 election that Nixon felt that the CIA had essentially aided Kennedy by someone in CIA providing information about the alleged although not true missile gap and so Helms was under no illusions. And, of course, Nixon didn't like Helms and some of the other CIA leaders because he viewed them as kind of the traditional Washington elite that he was very scornful of. Um, but uh, for a few reasons, I think they allowed CIA to continue to and, and to expand the Laos War. Uh, well, one was the, um, the war was uh, very, very un- unknown among most of the U.S. public. And although Nixon disliked Helms, he also loved um, being able to conduct operations in secrecy. Um, And in fact, even when the war was uh, brought out more to the U.S. public through a series of revelations by some activists who worked in Laos and some senators um, pushing a little harder, there there still wasn't really that much public interest. I, I talk in the book about how there was very little public interest um, not even let's talk about Vietnam, but even compared to Cambodia, when Nixon yeah. bombed Cambodia, you know there was huge um, protests on in the U.S. But after revelations about the scale and the scope of the bombing in Laos, um, and some 
some pushing on it by Senator Ted Kennedy and others, there was still much, very little U.S. response. Which is extraordinary because, as we'll talk about in a second, the, the effort in Laos was dramatically larger right. than it was other places. In, in the revelations of the secret bombing in Cambodia, you got Kent State. I mean, you had right. some pretty dramatic backlash. Um, and let's, so let's get into that a little bit. Some of, people may not quite understand the scale of what we're talking about here. And you write it in the book, and it, this is the biggest operation in CIA history. Right. It's the, the, the biggest covert operation in CIA history. Just to go back to Nixon for, yeah. for one second, Sorry. I also would say that um, one of the, the things that happened was in John's, late in Johnson and then going into Nixon is that the war in Laos changed a lot, and this is what alienated people who had been sort of on the Hmong side at the beginning. It changed from a war to or a conflict where the U.S. was trying to help local people, at least in their conception, that's what they were trying to do, defend their land while not, uh, while giving them the, the, basically the priority was them defending their land in the way that was most effective. And that way was um, a guerrilla concept uh, supported by the U.S. Under Shackley and then even more intensively uh, when Nixon became president, the war trans- in Laos transformed and the Hmong were transformed, mostly Hmong, but there were, other, there were others, but into basically a body count war, a, carnal, a charnel house war, uh, where this, the U.S. was, the, the goal for the U.S. at least was to kill as many North Vietnamese who were fighting in Laos, and, there were, and they were intensely involved in Laos as possible, so that those same North Vietnamese who were the best, the best trained, the toughest, most effective army in Southeast Asia, and ultimately defeated two major powers in the space of 30 years, kill as many of them as possible, no matter the consequences for Laos or your own Laotian allies. So what happened was Vang Pao and his men changed from fighting a lot of guerrilla guerrilla engagements that they were actually quite good at to being put into conventional wars, conventional battles, in open plains, in open areas. And that, that was... Uh, it did kill a lot of North Vietnamese, but that was disastrous for the Hmong and for Vang Pao's fighters because they just couldn't keep up with, with the body count. Well, and really the only option there for the Americans is to increase the bombing campaign, right. which is, you know, it goes from a top-secret clandestine secret war using hit-and-run tactics to essentially a World War II era flatten everything with right. rocket bombing. So the, the bombing campaign, which began in a small way in the mid-'60s, developed into a massive campaign. So not only was Laos the largest covert operation in CIA history, in U.S. history, the country of Laos, which is, you know, a, a very small country, you know, I mean, um, the, the, smaller than California, I mean, uh, with, a, with a population at that time less than 5 million, was bombed more heavily than Germany and Japan combined in the Second World War. It was being bombed, Ordinance was being dropped once every eight minutes um, for years over Laos, and um, this bomb, the bombing campaign, which at the beginning Vang Pao encouraged, after some time, it didn't really have a lot of clear intent. I mean, some of the intent was to take out North Vietnamese targets and Laotian communist targets. Some of the intent was to cut the North Vietnamese lines to South Vietnam. So there were some real strategic intents, but. Laos is a country with minimal infrastructure, right. with um, few towns, and the North Vietnamese had very, were not exposed in most places, and so um, there was little clear rules for um, bombing and no, really no sanction for, for um, 
missing what was even supposed targets. And, and, um, and many times, bombers who took off from Thailand on missions over Laos or to Vietnam um, that didn't either find their target or they had gone in to bomb in Vietnam and hadn't found a target would just release bombs over Laos just so they didn't have to land back with bombs. In some ways, the bombing became an end in itself. Um, administration officials would say, would declare internally that the war was going well because they had dropped so much tonnage of bombs, um, or you know the, the war was going better because the b- number of bombing runs had increased. Hey, you write that there were five hundred eighty thousand bombing runs during the war in Laos, which again seems extraordinary. And you said the statistic of an average of one bombing run every eight minutes for an entire decade. That that seems not like a CIA clandestine war to me. Right. So, I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so a couple things. First of all, um, like I said, even um, CIA folks and people in the U.S. intelligence com- community who went along with this, ch- the war and continuing it, began to see that um, the bombing itself, although there were some strategic goals, was was uh, well beyond what could be possibly construed as making strategic sense. And it was counterproductive in, in many ways. Um, the first most obvious way is to destroy the civilian population of Laos. Um, whole areas of the country were utterly destroyed. Um, the country today is still pocked and landmarked with bombs. Its infrastructure is still um, challenged by unexploded ordnance. Yeah, I mean, you write that, that many of the things dropped were anti-personnel mines, yeah, that a third of the bombs buried. don't detonate. Right. Um, three decades after the war ended, unexploded ordnance would maim or kill tens of thousands of Laotians. And even today, uh, they're still dealing with that. Right. So the second, and so what second, second thing is, um, at the beginning of the conflict, that you know, I mean, the, the Laotian communist forces were not particularly popular, but... The, but um, and uh, but the repeated massive bombing drove away sentiment and support for Bang Pao and his fighters who relied on public support, um, like any domestic army. But the third thing, in terms of it being clandestine or no longer clandestine, one impact it did have was it drove tens of hundreds of thousands of people out of areas and into the the capital of Laos. And at that point because the bombing had been so wide and now there were so many refugees, uh, American journalists who really had little access, or foreign journalists who really had little access to most of Laos um, where the secret war had been taking place, because refugees were now coming in, streaming into the capital and telling stories of massive bombing, it did begin to get a significant amount of news coverage and that's ultimately what prompted hearings and Kennedy and others on the Foreign Relations Committee to probe, why, were the, why was the U.S. in Laos, what was happening? So the extent that there was media coverage which and U.S. interest, which was still much less than Vietnam or Cambodia, and we could talk about why that is, but um, that bombing did have some impact and led to that. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, bomb, the, the bombing could, I mean, on moral grounds, on strategic grounds, I mean, there's just no justification. We'll have more of this in a second, but now I want to tell you about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized that the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. 
look, we open the new museum next year, and we're hiring people to work on exhibit development, research, and more. And we will eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people, and who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we don't have, as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job in all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly stream candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time to get it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. When you look at the annual budget, which, again, for a secret war that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, is extraordinary. You write that $500 million in 1970s money, which you equate to over $3 billion a year today. I mean, that's a major war. Yep. Um, I mean... The the money went also, I mean, so one of the reasons why it was a major conflict and um, the, the agency's budget for the war grew significantly. The number of contractors, pi- uh, helicopter pilots, plane pilots um, grew significantly. Um, and an entire apparatus for the war grew up. I mean, um, not just your actual CIA-employed operatives, who, some of whom were working in the field with Bang Pao, but um, USAID ramped up because um, we were now, the United States is now feeding a lot of the Hmong because they were being driven into a few areas of the, of the country where they were and out of their traditional land. So there was massive food drops to them, air drops, weapons drops. Um, the bases in northeast Thailand, which where the air campaigns were based, um, were built up into massive operations, um, so everything everything ex- expanded significantly. Um, and for most of this time, until like I said, until late sixties, early seventies, there were a couple senators who knew about the extent of the war, though, and a few Congress people who would go up to Laos and be get like a one or two day kind of Potemkin visit um, with Vang Pao and others. But no one really pressed too hard. Um, and in some of the ways, it's similar, I think, to congressional oversight of some of our current wars today. I mean, there's several reasons. I mean, one is, you know, in most of the Laos War, unlike obviously in the Vietnam War, there were Americans dying. More than 700 Americans died. But most of them were contractors or CIA operatives. So the news of their death did not uh, resonate with the American public, either because they and their family agreed not to tell anyone about it, which was they accepted as part of the deal, or simply because it didn't come in such large numbers mm-hmm. like in the actual Vietnam theater. So um, for a long time, Congress kind of just went along with it. You used the, used the term Potemkin Village, which I thought was a really humorous part of the book where you talk about how when members of Congress would come, Vang Pao would meet them in almost a fake 
headquarters yeah. that had nothing to do. It was just set up for VIP visits. Right. So, I mean, some Congress men, it was almost all men at that time, um, w- took an interest, but they would bring them up to this to Laos, and they would meet with Vang Pao, who was a very charismatic figure, kind of looked like a general, um, and he he was a general in the army by then, you know, and wore fatigues and a a marine hat and was very outgoing. But they wouldn't usually bring them to the actual base where where Vang Pao and the CIA were running their operations in Longqing, which is a a place in Laos, which is had turned into, by that time, by the late 60s, a massive base with airstrips, anti-aircraft, tens of thousands of mostly Hmong who had come and fled to be near the base because war was raging in other places. There was, like, Thai commandos there, a few foreign mercenaries, CIA, and so it was a major, major operation. But the Congress people who came would usually be skirted past that um, so that it looked like Vang Pao was really running everything without any CIA involvement. And um, t- taken to uh, another village where they would be shown kind of Vang Pao running everything or just kind of welcomed by a few Lao women and then uh, had an overnight and flown back. Very rarely uh, were they ever allowed to see really the specifics of how the operation was commanded and the extensive presence of CIA there. A lot of smoke and mirrors so they don't really understand right. how much American and Americans involved. And in I Laos. should say from their part, I mean, there were senators who knew, but they really didn't want to know more. No. So it was some, there were some who I think were brought up and were shown this and that was enough. And there was others who really didn't. And they only changed their mind and wanted to really know more or know what they already really knew. They wanted to actually know it publicly um, when the U.S. when the American public sentiment became more expressly anti-war in the late 60s and early 70s although even then Laos was still a, less a priority so there were senators who just didn't want to know what they could have known Before we talk about the broader argument uh, the impact of Laos for further CIA operations I want to ask you about a quote that you have in the book from a U.S. general who argued that uh, there would have been at least 10,000 more Americans killed in Vietnam if it wasn't for the war in Laos, and not to justify any kind of human, any of the humanitarian loss or anything else, which you can't do. Uh, how how realistic is that? I mean, how much of an impact did the war in Laos have on the broader fight in Vietnam? Um, I know it's a counterfactual. I know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, a counterfactual. It's hard to answer. I mean, yeah. certainly. Um, you know, at different points in Vietnam, in uh, Laos, the North Vietnamese Hanoi sent tr- groups of its, m- some of its most experienced divisions and um, Vang Pao and other parts of the Laotian armed forces, but engaged with them and tied them down to some extent. I mean, the CIA, the CIA sort of looked back at the Laos war after it was over argued that the war was a success um, in some ways, and that success came in several kind of flavors. And the, certainly there's a clear argument that the, the war was a success for the CIA in that it elevated the CIA's role in policymaking, put them clearly at the table alongside state and defense as important policymakers, and created a 
paramilitary branch made it much stronger. But the, the CIA's own internal assessment argues that the same thing, that it was essentially that it was a success because it tied down North Vietnamese and to some extent Laotian, but North Vietnamese communist forces who would have otherwise been in South Vietnam. I mean, it is true. I mean, I don't know if it's 10,000 or not. Um, and I'm not trying to make any kind of value judgment. I'm just trying to see if if anything that was done made a difference. I guess the, yeah, I mean, I guess, I'm not sh- I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that counterfactual. I mean, I think Bill Lair would have said that if that if if your goal was to, to harass and tie down the North Vietnamese as long as possible in Laos, it probably still would have been better to keep equipping the Hmong and Vang Pao as a guerrilla force and keep them um, launching guerrilla attacks against the North Vietnamese and Laotian communists rather than wasting so many of them in conventional battles they couldn't win. Um, and maybe you could have tied them down longer. Um, but I, I understand I it's not a fair question. I mean, you could also make the counter-argument that the 580,000 bombing runs on Laos would have been better used on Vietnam, or, or the $3.1 billion a year better used for Vietnam. But I, I just wanted to... That was an interesting quote that you included. I just wanted to see what you thought about it. No matter what store-bought clothing you've been using in the past, Mack Walden is better than whatever you're wearing right now. And will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, shorts, polos, and sweatpants that you'll ever own. And now that it's truly winter, it's worth checking out the Mack Weldon Merino products and their Ace Crew sweatshirt. The Merino line is not your grandma's wool. The custom fabric blend creates a garment that is soft, lightweight, antimicrobial, moisture-wicking, thermoregulating, and wrinkle-resistant. The difference between Merino wool and grandma's wool is that fibers from Merino sheep are the finest on earth making them incredibly soft and lightweight. Merino wool is a truly remarkable fabric. It's the softest, lightest, and most breathable wool in existence. It adjusts to the needs of your body temperature and smells fresh for days, making it the ideal base layer for everything from cold urban commuting to hitting the ski slopes to crawling under the covers at night. It's truly daily wear, all thanks to a sheep in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. Then there is the crew sweatshirts, which have received a modern makeover where versatility meets comfort. Made for life indoors and outdoors to be worn under or over other items to create a refined layered look. Slim fit, super soft loop back French terry and signature details that go the extra mile. Wear them anywhere. Seriously. And of course, Mack Weldon will always have the try on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics. Smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. Let's go to the 30,000-foot view. And one of the broad arguments that you're making in here that maybe is what's getting a little pushback, uh, but I want to get your, your, your take on it, is that the Laotian operation, which we actually haven't even said. It was called Operation Momentum. We haven't even said that. Um, really serves as the template for other CIA paramilitary action which comes after it, which is a lot, you know, since 1960. Uh, you, do you want to kind of work your way through that? Because there's a lot of elements to it, but I think that it's the most interesting argument to me. I'm, I'm sold on it to a degree, uh, but I'd like to hear what, what kind of how you lay it out. Sure. I mean, I don't want to argue that it's the template for exact template. I mean, the because things change, but... It was the operation that did several things. Um, 
it elevated the, the folks in CIA who were focused on paramilitary operations and many of whom had been in the military or special forces rather than um, folks in, who were in, in intelligence work and, and not in paramilitary side who had traditionally, who at that time had been very much an old boys network, had come a lot of them from um, a background in Ivy League and in analytical work. It made those branches more equal. It was it dramatically expanded the CIA's budget far, far, far beyond it had ever had before. And even after the reforms of the seventies, which downsized paramilitary and cut the CIA's budget and enacted reforms, not because of the Laos War, but because of all these other things mm-hmm. that we know about, um, the budget never went back down in, in consistent for today's numbers to the way it was before the Laos War. Um, it. Set, created a mindset within CIA that this is a type of operation that the agency could do, which on this scale had never been done before. And it was even in 1975, even in 1977, even in 1979, after uh, communist forces had taken Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and CIA had encountered pushback from the Ford and Carter administrations it was still regarded and written up as a major success for the agency. And I think it, it, it still is for those who look at it. So it made paramilitary operations a major focus of the agency. It also, not uncoincidentally, trained a generation of officers who might otherwise have been uh, you know, in intel work in Berlin or in intel work in, uh, in, you know, in Mexico City. It took a generation of officers tr- highly skilled people and they got they like made their bones in Laos and those f- folks learned that this is something the CIA could and could do and some of them went on to major important posts um, in operations some of them were involved in um, Central America in the 80s some of them worked with the Mujahideen in the 80s some of them were still around after 9-11 so there was a direct um, sort of message that was sent, but there was also a generation of people. I mean, this was a war that went on uh, with CIA assistance for 12 years, so a whole generation of folks. Um, we can talk, and then, I mean, you can cut me off, but I was going to say about in terms of it also sort of established a pattern of problematic oversight. Yeah, I was going to say no Congress, you know. No. So the war went on, and one thing that we saw here was that it was possible to we're not talking about um, a training program for um, anti-communist Chinese fighters or um, even a, um, a Bay of Pigs type situation, but a, you know, a 12-year um, extended twilight war with an enormous budget and very, very, very significant casualties. Even it's over 700 casual, American casualties. That's nothing to be sniffed at, and you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of domestic casualties, bombing that um, is done, and and minimal oversight. So a message is sent that this is possible, which I think is very, very relevant to um, what's happened in the last 15 years in which the CIA has again sort of taken up the kind of the way of the knife, um, to to mention the the book by Mark Mazzetti, Mm -hmm. but and the way of the knife in which the CIA is used not only or not exclusively or not even primarily as an intelligence-gathering operation but as a, a 
war or as a killing organization, that really traces, to me, traces its roots to Laos. And there are some other specific um, elements as well, but I mean, I think in that way, the the pattern was set. And I think you see in today, um, in a very similar environment as you had in the early parts of the Laos War, you have a U.S. public that's, um, you know, I wouldn't say the U.S., I'm not sure actually right now, but I wouldn't say the U.S. public is isolationist, but you have a very high degree of isolationist sentiment in the U.S. public today, at least in polling. But at the same time, there's enormous fear of um, certain types of terrorism. There's enormous fear of Islamist terrorism. Um, so, but people still remember the Iraq War, the Afghanistan Wars, etc. So you have a somewhat similar situation in the early 60s when um, the Korean War had just happened, recently happened. It was a bloody, brutal stalemate. The U.S. public wasn't really that excited for another conventional war, although they wound up having another conventional war. Um, but yet there was this pretty intense ideological fear, and a, a covert war really sort of fit in effectively. So one of the things that really jumped out at me that you talk about details that were similarities between what uh, the, the CIA did in Laos and what we're looking at today, and this might sound familiar to a lot of the listeners out there also, is the widespread use of contractors in the war in Laos, because that is something that, you know, whether it's Blackwater or anybody else, the CIA and the American government uses pretty extensively today. Um, you know, that's not just in the paramilitary side, certainly in the in intelligence collection analysis side, too. Edward Snowden can, comes to mind. This is widespread in the war in Laos. Uh, is this something that comes out of nowhere? Is this something that Laos is kind of the catalyst for? Can you talk a little bit about the use of contractors in this war? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways Laos was the catalyst some a very small number. I mean, the Air America derived from a previous airline. That's but um, but in terms of the use of contractors, um, the much more widespread use of contractors as spotters for airstrikes, as, as pilots, as, um, as providing aid and and others. Laos was a, a really big game compared to anything the CIA had done before. And um, as the war ramped up, the and um, the agency just and the agency and those in the military who were also wor- working with it and um, they just didn't have the manpower to backstop such a significant operation um, in terms of pilots, in terms of helicopter pilots, in terms of the quote unquote the so-called ravens, which are the people who went into Laos and and called in strikes um, and people to serve on the on the ground in in Laos. Um, so a massive um, contractor hiring sort of experiment began um, and uh, ramped up and uh, mostly out of Thailand but in other places as well. Um, and again, it was, a, it was sort of a twilight effort, not a secret effort. They were advertising in the English language newspapers in Thailand in a very thinly veiled way for people to, contractors to work in the war effort. So it wasn't exactly secret, but it was sort of pseudo-secret. But this was really the beginning of the, the really, really widespread use of contractors in this type of operation. They weren't taking out ads in the New York Times, but they were reaching <laughs> out to some uh, ex, ex-military types roaming around. Right, yeah. Asia. And I mean, then as now, I mean, Bangkok had a lot of ex-military types. Um, there were people who had finished their, their tours in Vietnam. Once the actual Vietnam conventional conflict started going. There were a lot of folks who would do a, do a tour and then 
um, for whatever reason, they they wanted to stay or they liked Southeast Asia or whatever. So they were hiring a lot of people out of Bangkok or a lot a lot of expats living in Bangkok. And um, but the point the point is that uh, they were it was sort of it wasn't really hidden. One other thing thing I just want to mention about that it was problematic because um, with the actual CIA folks who were work operations folks who were working in Laos, um, increasingly they were hiring people who had. Um, a lot of training and military background. It shifted. They stopped necessarily hiring so many without. But a lot of the contract, or a fair number of the contractors who were being hired, um, communications folks, some ravens, some others, um, weren't given a, a great amount of training. And there was a couple of um, times that I chronicle in the book where they just were uh, in very dangerous situations against the North Vietnamese Army, not well, not effectively equipped, not effectively trained, and that 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 did not turn out well. We like to thank our great sponsors, Mac Weldon and ZipRecruiter, for continuing to support Spycast. Remember, you can get twenty percent off at macweldon.com by using the promo code Spycast. That's twenty percent off at macweldon.com by using the promo code Spycast. And you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. And you can get freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries starting at just $19.99 plus shipping or double the berries for just $10 more. Go to Berries.com and use our code SPYCAST. Well, Josh Kurlancic is a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, he is the author of the new book, A Great Place to Have a War, The Secret War in Laos, and the Birth of a Military CIA. I highly recommend it. Thank you, Josh, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL SpyCast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.